following message was given by Robert Green, Sunday, October 20th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Make your way to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to pick up the story in verse 11. For those of you that are guests with us, it's our, it's our custom here to teach from God's Word throughout the year by taking a book of the Bible, starting at the beginning and working our way through the entirety of that book that we might best understand what the Lord has said to His people and continues to say to His people in the context that He's put it together. And just a couple of weeks ago, we started the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel and we were introduced to a time in the life of God's people of deep moral, civil, religious corruption a time in the period of the judges when everyone in Israel did whatever they wanted, whatever was right in their own eyes. And the writer of the book of Samuel brought us close into this people and introduced us to a family from Ramah. And in particular, introduced us to a matriarch of the faith named Hannah. Hannah was unable to have children, which was a tremendous burden and a tremendous shame for women in her day. And Hannah carried that with her every single day. She was minimized at times in her pain by her husband, misunderstood by religious leaders, provoked endlessly by her rival, Paniah. Yet we learn that Hannah believed something to be true about God. She believed in his power, believed in his goodness, and on what she believed, Hannah acted. And in the first week, we were introduced to Hannah going to the tabernacle of the Lord, pleading with the Lord, petitioning to the Lord in her tears and in her sorrow for God to hear her, and if it was her will, his will to give her a son. And if he gave her a son, she would in turn return that son back to the Lord to serve him forever. And we learned the faith of this woman, Hannah, in that first week. And then last week when we picked the story up, we saw that God indeed remembered Hannah. He heard her prayer. He remembered her and gave her a son that she named Samuel. And we saw how Hannah, having been remembered by God, remembered her vow to him how difficult that would have been if it was you or I. And she remembered that vow. And when he was of age, after she had weaned him, she took him to the tabernacle to, to leave Samuel there in the tabernacle for the rest of his life to serve the Lord there in the tabernacle. And as we kind of came to the end of that story, we saw Hannah again pray. And this time it wasn't a prayer of petition. It was a prayer of praise. And in that prayer, we saw the heart of Hannah towards her God, we heard Hannah lay out all the attributes, the character of the one that she had believed in and trusted. His strength, his sovereignty, his unchangeableness, his holiness, his wisdom, his justice. We saw her praise him for who he was. And because of who she believed him to be, she could do the very thing she promised to do. But embedded in that prayer, if you remember, this praise of Hannah's towards God, there was a warning. It was an exaltation of who God really is in all of his sovereignty and majesty. And it, and it served not just as a praise to him, but a warning to everyone else. This is the incomparable God. Exalting yourself and your own self-righteousness and your own exaltation in light of the holiness and the majesty of this God is foolish and it's dangerous. And it's with that prayer that praise echoing in the ears of those who would have heard this story read or would read it for themselves after it had been written that we get to the rest of the story. We always ruin a good story with a sermon. You, you really would have read last week with this week and it would all fit together. So let's pick it up and kind of see. How does the story continue? We're gonna get to the, the last bit we're gonna hear about Hannah this morning, but 
like a good link in a chain, she's going to connect us to the rest of what the writer of the book of Samuel is trying to help us understand. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, let's pick it up in verse 11. Then after this great prayer, this great praise of Hannah's, Elkanah and his family, they went home to Ramah. And the boy, Samuel, the one that God had given her, the one she had vowed to leave there in the tabernacle, she left. And Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now real quick, just as a way of help, I think it should be helpful, maybe not, but I'm going to hope it is. To better understand the weight of this story, I think we need to do a little bit of a refresher on the role of the priesthood in the life of God's people in this time. God had set apart a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi, to serve in a particular way, the right worship, the leading of the right worship of him for his people. The tribe of Levi would serve in perpetuity for God's purposes as priests. And the role of the priests were varied, but you can kind of combine it all into a few major things. The priests would mediate between God and man by offering up sacrifices that God had appointed. And the people would bring the appropriate items for the sacrifice to the tabernacle. The priests would take those items and would offer them up to the Lord as he had required on behalf of the people. Those sacrifices could deal with sacrifices of gratitude and thankfulness or to deal with the guilt of their sin. That's what they kind of all fell into, all the different varied ones. And they would offer up prayers on behalf of the people. And they were responsible to teach the people the word of the Lord. Those are the three basic things the priests did. They did a lot of things, but you could kind of throw it all into those things. God set them apart for this purpose. So when God chose the tribe of Levi to serve as priests, when they went into the promised land, God gave all the tribes different areas, different lands that they could have, that they would farm, that they would grow. But the priests, they didn't get their own land. Levi didn't get land. But to take care of the priests... God appointed in the sacrificial system that portions of each sacrifice would be given over to the priest to take care of him and his family. Portions of offerings that were brought would be set aside for the priest and for his family. So God had intended for these men that he set apart to serve him in a particular way, to lead his people in the right worship of him, who weren't going to have the opportunity to grow their land and their farms and their wealth in this way. He was going to provide for them. As they were dependent upon him, to serve him and the people, he would provide for them. There was one priest, always one in the time of the priesthood, who was the high priest. And he would do everything the other priests would do throughout the year, but one time a year, he was responsible and set apart by God to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle. And there, after having offered sacrifices for his sin, his family's sin, and a particular sacrifice for the sin of the people, he would go into the presence of God there in the Holy of Holies, where he would mediate between God and his people. And on his chest, he would wear a breastplate over his robes, his ephod. And on that breastplate would be 12 precious stones representing the tribes of Israel. He would literally take God's people into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies on his heart as he mediated between them. This was his primary distinctive role in relation to the other priests. So these were holy men having been set apart by God, one writer said, to serve a holy God on behalf of a holy, called out, set apart people. These were the priests. And so as we get to the rest of the story, in light of what Hannah has just said, if you remember in that great prayer of praise, and she offered this warning to those who would exalt themselves against God, that the God of all knowings would weigh the deeds of those who would do this in his presence and in his light out for what they were worth. You'd be surprised to find how this prayer, how this warning, how this judgment begins to get worked out. Naturally, as, as you would have heard in that day, Hannah, pray this prayer and offer this warning, your mind would have been, yeah, Philistines, Canaanites, 
All of those that would exalt themselves against God and his people. God's going to bring judgment. But the story picks up here in verse 12, and we find the judgment of God begin in a very different place than you would expect. Verse 12, the sons of Eli, the sons of the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, we met last week, were priests. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. And while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So God had already prescribed a particular portion of the sacrifice that was to be for the priests, for their family, for them to eat, for them to be taken care of. But they were no longer satisfied with what God designated for them. So they sent a servant, a hired man, a thug of the temple, with tabernacle to go out and he would take up a fork and he would put it in the pot while the sacrifice was being boiled. And he would take the best portions for Hophni and Phinehas. He would take what they wanted out of the pot for them. Rather than receiving what God had designated, there were portions of each sacrifice. God was clear, either a wing or a breast or a thigh, depending upon the different sacrifice. They weren't satisfied with that. They went and had their servant take for them what they wanted. They did it to everybody, all of Israel, not just certain families. It wasn't like there were certain families that would come up they just didn't like, so they would go and do this to them. This is how they treated all of Israel and their worship of the one true God. But the writer says, moreover, it gets worse. Moreover, before the fat was burned. See, the fat was the portion of the sacrifice that God had said was mine. You burn the fat on the altar as an offering to me. The Old Testament calls that actually the bread of the Lord. This was his. The fat in all the sacrifices was to be set apart and burned for the Lord. Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. He's tired of the boiled meat that God had set apart for him. He's tired of what God said, I will provide for you to care for you. I want some of this. I'm going to go roast my own meat. And guess what? Just leave the fat on it. That's the best part anyway. I want that too. And if the man said to the servant, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So now they're threatening God's people through their servant. Give us what is actually God's portion. The priests want his portion for themselves. And if you even try to be obedient to the Lord in this way, if you even try to say, look, take all the raw meat you want. Okay, I know you're not supposed to, but take it. Just give God his first. They threaten you with violence. Thus, the writer says in verse 17, the sin the missing of God's holy standard, the missing of the mark of what God had said. The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they they showed no regard for the Lord, no regard for his word, no regard for his people, and no regard for his sacrifices. And so the writer says their sin was very great. But here's the thing, very great, not just in, in, in English, but probably even in Hebrew in the mind, very great doesn't seem to capture, I don't think, the the full freight of what was happening here. So we keep reading in the story, we find out that, that their sin knew no bounds. It really knew no limit. If you skip down to verse 22, 
we find out that Hophni and Phineas, they weren't just robbing God of what was his. They weren't just taking for themselves what they wanted from the people's sacrifices. They were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This was the place where God had appointed for his people to come into his presence. And they were using the position they had as priests. They were using the authority and the privilege that was given to them as priests before God's people to satisfy their own desires. The writer of 1 Samuel says they were truly worthless men. Despicable, deplorable, all the different ways you can translate it. God had given them a position, a particular position, a particular privilege, a particular authority and power that came with it. And they were not using it to serve the people that God had called them to serve. Rather, they used it to exploit them. To satisfy their own lusts and their own greed. And in doing so, they sinned not only against God's people, but they were sinning against God himself. They were set apart by God, chosen through the line of Levi, set apart by God, cared for by God, meant to be dependent upon God for their provision and for their satisfaction, meant to understand the right and the privilege that was theirs to serve God's people as priests, to lead people in the holiness and right worship of God, a tremendous privilege they had. And they were meant to be satisfied in the Lord in that. And yet they use that role to satisfy themselves. And the writer doesn't leave us as wondering as to why they did it. Verse 12 says they didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. And because they didn't know him, they had no problem robbing him or exploiting his people. And this isn't an information problem. It's not like they didn't know information about the Lord. We'll talk about it more specifically later on in, in, in the message. But their entire life had been wrapped up in religion. Their entire life had been wrapped up in God's word up to that point. They knew all the the words of Moses, all God's words through Moses. They knew all the the right rituals and sacrifices and all they were supposed to do. They were even charged with teaching those things to God's people. It wasn't that they lacked information about God. It's that they weren't satisfied with him in their heart. The same thing can be said back in the story of the Exodus with Pharaoh. When Moses is speaking the word of God to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. It's not a lack of information that he had about the Lord, the God of Israel. It was a statement of defiance towards him. The same is being said of Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of God's people in this day. They didn't know the Lord. And the writer has written it in a particular way because evidence of this reality amongst the priests of God's people was meant to shock those who would hear the story. You were coming out of Hannah's prayer, out of her praise, out of this warning of judgment, and you're expecting to hear a story of the Philistines being brought down, the Canaanites being destroyed, yet you hear of the sin and the moral depravity of the priests, and the people would have been shocked. And in 2019, we read this, and we're supposed to be shocked. The problem is we've become too cynical to be shocked. We're all too familiar with leaders using their positions and their power and their authority to exploit people for their own pleasure, for their own greed and for their own ends. Doesn't matter if they're political and they ride a donkey or an elephant. Doesn't matter if they're in Hollywood or Richmond. Doesn't matter if they're a school teacher or a banker. Doesn't matter if they're a man or a woman. The abuse of power, the abuse of authority, the abuse of this kind of privilege to serve those and rather instead of serving those, using them to serve yourself, it was evil then and it's evil now. And you're supposed to be shocked by it. The problem is we've just become too familiar with it. 
No wonder Israel was in such a mess. These were the priests. God's people were coming in obedience to God's word to offer the sacrifices that God required of them for pardon, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for fellowship, for peace, all the different offerings that God had there. They were coming in obedience to his word and this is how his set apart holy men were treating him and treating them. No wonder Israel did whatever they wanted in their own eyes. There was no consequence for the priests. And just as we're supposed to be shocked by the reality of what's going on here, we're we're meant on this point of the story to take it as a warning. A warning not just to those who would ever take on a role of leadership in the church, though it's not less than that. That's why in the New Testament, whenever the writers talk about the leadership of the church and elders and deacons, like we talked about this morning, the first and primary qualification for anyone who takes a role of leadership in the church is always their character, never their particular competence. It's not are they a good business person, do they have good strategies, are they good managers? Are they able to get a lot of things done? That's never first and primary. The first and primary qualification for those who would take a role of leadership in the church is always their character. But it's not just a warning to those. It's a warning to all of us who who I think in 2019 would tend to read this story hypocritically as though you and I aren't faced with the same temptation to treat God and his word with the same kind of contempt. To think that somehow our proud, proud, and tall, tall hearts are the exceptions to his standards. To somehow read this story and think we're immune from the same sinful temptations that Hophni and Phinehas, and as we'll see, Eli, found themselves guilty of. See, this story comes right on the heels of that great prayer of Hannah's with that great word of warning. It would be echoing in the ears and in the minds of those who would read this story. Go back and read it through without stopping. It's foolish and evil to exalt yourselves in the light of the one true incomparable God. Hophni and Phinehas are behaving foolishly and it's a great evil. They may not know the Lord, but he is indeed the God of all knowings and he is the one who will not fail to know them and their deeds and he will not fail to weigh them out in the balance of his holiness. But the story isn't done. The God of all knowings isn't the only one to be aware of what's going on. Look at verse 22. The writer says, Eli, their dad, he was very old. He was probably close to 90 at this point. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. So he didn't get a a report one day. They didn't send an email one day to Eli and he find out, oh, my sons are behaving badly. Eli had been hearing for years the reports of what his sons were doing to all of Israel. The high priest was no longer overseeing what was happening in the tabernacle. That's one problem. He had stepped away and let his sons do what they were doing. So he had received all these reports, what they were doing. And the high priest was aware. And not just the high priest, their dad. Eli wears two hats in this story. Their dad was aware of how they were exploiting God's people and showing contempt to God's sacrifices. So in verse 23, we see him respond. He looks at his boys and he says to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. All these people are telling me about what you're doing. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. 
If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? See, here's the tragedy. It's only in his very old age, after countless reports of their abuse, the way that they're treating all of God's people and God's sacrifices, it's only then that Eli finally says something. And here's the thing, sad as it is, even when he says something, as true as it is what he says, there's a weakness that's exposed in Eli. Yes, he called their behavior evil, and it is evil. He even explained to them the seriousness of their sin. That's what verse 25 is. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. That was the role of the sacrificial system that God had put in place. There were offerings for guilt. There were offerings for sins against men. There was mediation that God had provided through the sacrifices and the role of the priest to deal with those sins. But, man, if you sin against the Lord, who can intercede for you? Eli understood that his sons, they they weren't just sinning against God's people. They were sinning against God himself and they were showing contempt for the very means of grace that God had established. It's like Eli saying, look, if you're showing contempt, no regard, disregard for the very hope that God provides for you, what hope do you have left? What you're doing is evil. And the hope and the grace that God has provided, you're treating it with no regard. And then you're expecting him to do something. But he doesn't. This is the weakness of Eli. As high priest and even his dad, he took no action to discipline his sons or end their evil behavior. As high priest and as father, he had every right and every responsibility to deal with this. At least, bottom level, as high priest, he was responsible to remove them from their position. To no longer give them the place to exploit God's people this way. To treat God with such contempt. High priest, he at least had to do that. According to the law, they stood suspect of being stoned for their sin. High priest, he could have done that. Dad? He had every right and every responsibility to deal with his sons for their sin. But he doesn't. He had allowed it for years. And they had grown entitled to their behavior. This is the same Eli who was so quick to rebuke Hannah for her drunkenness because he didn't understand what she was doing. But yet he won't deal with his own sons and their sin against God and against God's people. It's what one writer calls the the sin of inexcusable indifference. Maybe the gravest of sins parents can exercise against their children. A sin we're going to see play out not just here with Eli and his sons. We're going to see it in the story with Samuel and his sons. We're going to see it with David and his family. The inexcusable indifference of not being willing to deal with their sin. One writer said Eli could not bear that his sons be disgraced and degraded. Rather, he would satisfy satisfy himself with a mild remonstrance, a mild challenge, notwithstanding that every new day disgrace was heaped on the sanctuary and new encouragement was given to others to practice wickedness. Yes, he called it evil. Yes, he warned them of the consequence. But in his weakness, he failed to do anything appropriate about it. And in verse 25, we read, they would not listen to the voice of their father, 
for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God gave them over to the evil desires of their heart. It is the scariest word of God's judgment that you will ever read in the Bible. In Romans chapter 2, when in his judgment, God will give some over to the evil desires of their own heart. Let them have the very thing they want that leads to their own destruction. God didn't harden their hearts and give them over to the evil desires of their hearts because they didn't listen to their father. It's because God gave them over to their hearts that they didn't listen to their father. It's because God had removed whatever quickening influence on their hearts that would have allowed them to hear even the weakest of challenges and come in repentance. For their contempt against the Lord, for their proud, proud and tall, tall, arrogant self-exaltation, God has judged the sons of Eli. He's allowing them to have the very things that they want. But Eli is not off the hook. Look at verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus saith the Lord. God's words coming in the story now. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Look, didn't I choose your forefathers? Aren't I the one who determined to set you and your lineage and your family and your house apart to serve me? Didn't I choose you to be my priest? to go up to my altar, that's to offer sacrifices, to burn incense, that's to offer prayers, to wear an ephod before me, to mediate, to bring God's people on your heart before me in my presence. Didn't I call you to do this? I gave to the house of your father all of my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. I've taken care of you. I promised to provide for you. I made a way. You didn't get land, you didn't get farms, you didn't get territory, but I promised to take care of you. Didn't I do that? The prophet of God comes with God's word, reminds Eli of the past grace of God shown to him and his family. And the past grace of God being brought to bear on this present situation does one thing. It just highlights the depth and the reality of the sin. Why do you scorn? Why do you kick against my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwelling? Why? Here's the underlying problem for Eli. Why do you honor your sons above me? Why are you honoring your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Yeah, it was Hophni and Phinehas that were exploiting God's people. It was Hophni and Phinehas that had servants to go out and taking the meat. It was Hophni and Phinehas that were abusing the women serving in the tabernacle, but Eli was culpable. The high priest was culpable. In this situation, dad was culpable because he had chosen at some point along the way to fatten himself on the fruits of his son's sins. Yeah, Hophni and Phinehas, I've hardened their heart, but you're not off the hook, Eli. You have honored your children above me. And in doing so, you've shown very little regard for my reputation and the good of my people. And so the prophet, having exposed God's past grace and the depth of the present sin of Eli and his sons, he offers a word of judgment. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, they shall be lightly esteemed. Here it comes. 
Behold, the days, of, days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. A day is coming, Eli. You're going to have no one left. All of your descendants are going to be put to death. There will be no priests from your house serving me anymore. And as a sign that this is going to happen, look at verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them will die on the same day. When you see your sons die on the same day, you can be certain, dead certain, no pun intended, that what the Lord has just said is going to come to pass. And the prophet goes on though, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house. He will go in and out before my anointed forever. But everyone who was left in your house shall come to him and implore for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Literally, it's what Hannah just said in her prayer would happen according to God's purposes and plans. Those who were full will hire themselves out for bread. A day is coming when you've made yourself fat on the sacrifices of God's people, but a day is going to come when you're going to beg from my priest for bread. Talk no more so very proudly. God is a God of knowledge, and by him all actions are weighed. Mary Evans, a great Old Testament scholar, she said the corruption of Eli's house had been very clear to the whole community of Israel. And now their downfall, downfall is going to be equally apparent. God will not be mocked. And here's the thing. It, it, this is not just a story of judgment. It, it's not just a story of warning. It's not less than that. It's actually more than that. I mean, we know throughout the entirety of redemptive history, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And even in this story, this story of such moral decay, such sin, such abuse, such shame and justice and judgment. Even here, evidences of God's grace abound. Even here in judgment, evidence of God working graciously with his people are present. All throughout this story, if you go back and read it in its totality, all throughout the story of Eli's weakness and Hophni and Phinehas' depravity, there are these little snippets about Samuel. They're kind of scattered in there. They're, they're single lines for the most part, little things about him, but they're put in the story in particular places in a particular way by the writer to highlight the contrast between the sin of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas and the grace of God at work in a boy named Samuel. I mean, look back at your Bible. Look back at it real quick. In verse 11, the writer starts the story by saying Samuel, the boy, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then immediately you hear about the sins of Eli's sons before God and before the people in the tabernacle. And then in verses 18 and 21, you hear again Samuel ministering before the Lord and the boy Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord. And then immediately in verses 22 to 25, you see the depth of Eli's son's sin grow even deeper. 
Then in verse 26, you, you hear that Samuel will continue to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. And then right after that in verses 27 through 36, as Samuel is growing in age and stature and in favor with all of people and God, Eli's house is coming to an end. The days of his sons are numbered. The days of his descendants are numbered. And in the first verse of chapter 3, we're reminded the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. All throughout the story, while the priests are defiling God's people and his sacrifices, no sense of regard for the Lord and their role or his people, there's Samuel, the boy, wearing the linen ephod of the priest, looking like a priest, and seeming to be the only one doing the very things priests were meant to do. In the presence of such tremendous sin, such tremendous corruption. I mean, these were his mentors. This is what they were doing to all of Israel. You better believe that Hannah knew this when she dropped him off. In the presence of such tremendous sin and tremendous corruption by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, Samuel, the boy, continued to grow closer to the Lord in the presence of God in stature and in favor. This is the evidence of God's grace in the midst of moral corruption. God continues to, did then and does now, grow people in his favor in wisdom and knowledge of him. Evidence of God's grace, even in the midst of such decay and travesty in Israel there, is seen just in these snippets of, of Samuel. It's seen in the contrast between the families. There are two little stories there about his family and, and Eli's family. In verses 19 through 21, you hear of Hannah's love for her son as she would make him this robe and bring it to him every year. Eli blessing her when they would come back to the tabernacle every year to offer sacrifices. God responding to the blessing, giving Hannah and her family more children and Samuel continuing to grow. And right after you get this little story about the blessing of God on Hannah and her son, you go right back to Eli. You get his sorrow for his sons. After having blessed Hannah and her family, he has to rebuke his own. And after God provides life for Hannah, giving her more children, he prophesies an end to the family of Eli and his sons. And Samuel's there growing in favor with God and man. And then you get to the bottom of the story in verse 35. This prophet, having, having read this story, having seen the literary structure, Samuel's growing in the wisdom and favor of the Lord in the midst of such corruption. The priest keeps sinning. Samuel keeps growing. The priest keeps sinning. Samuel keeps growing. God blesses his family, brings an end to the Eli and his sons. And you get to this verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And you're left with the question, is Samuel the faithful priest? Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, worthless men. Samuel, growing in favor with the Lord and men. Eli and Hophni, and Phinehas, they're coming to an end. Samuel continues to grow in the favor of God. Is Samuel the promised priest that the prophet is talking about? Well, if you stick with us in, in weeks to come, you'll see the, the very thing the prophet said would happen, to be, to be a sign of the judgment coming to Eli, it's going to happen. Eli is going to see his sons die on the same day. And he's going to respond to it and he's going to be certain that what God had said through the prophet is going to come. 
And if you stick with us and you keep with the story, you'll see that Samuel is going to step into the office that God has appointed for him. But it's not going to be the office of a priest. It's going to be the office of a prophet. In due time, in the reign of King Solomon, you can read the story of how the fullness of God's judgment comes to pass and the finality of Eli's descendants die by the sword of man and the one that was left to, to cry and to weep, he, he goes to the priest Zadok, who's the high priest at the time, begs for bread, begs for blessing, just as God had said. And you're left wondering, well, that must be the faithful high priest that God is talking about. And that's how, that's how Jewish scholars for centuries have interpreted it. That happened. There was a faithful priest in the land. The last of Eli's descendants came and begged for him for bread. That's the one God is talking about. But here's the thing. Zadok, that particular priest during Solomon's day, and Samuel and all the priests between them, they all had one Achilles heel. You know what it was? They all died. They're all dead. God promised a particular faithful high priest who would do all that was in his heart, all that was in his mind forever. Who can actually do that? And as those who would hear the story and read the story, sit in the story would go, you're left with this idea that God hold out on his promise. Because as the story comes to an end, the priest dies. God promised this faithful priest forever. I mean, is this one part of the promise that he just kind of bypassed and skipped over? Is this just one of those Old Testament nuggets that you kind of look past and go on? Well, friends, we have a privilege that those who heard this in its original day didn't have. We live on this side of redemptive history and we're reminded by the writer of the book of Hebrews that God did provide this faithful high priest for his people who would do all that was in his heart and his mind perfectly. He would do it forever. He provided it for his people in his son, Jesus. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 23 says this, the former priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. All of them, they would die. But Jesus, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and Abathar and Zadok after them, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The writer of Hebrews would say in, in reminding us what the prophet told Eli, I set my priest apart to go to my altar to offer sacrifices on behalf of my people for the guilt of their sin and for the gratitude to God's grace and kindness towards them, his provision for them. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, is the one, not just a faithful high priest who offers that sacrifice once for all, but who, in his body on the cross, became the once for all sacrifice for sin, satisfying God's justice for sin for all who by his grace believe in him. He wasn't just the priest who offered the sacrifice, he became the sacrifice himself, the perfect once for all sacrifice. The need for the offering of animal sacrifices to mediate and receive pardon from God has ended because in his son, Jesus offered up the perfect sacrifice for sin in himself. Consequently, 
for those who would believe in him, who would repent of their sins and believe on Jesus as king and as savior, he is able to save to the uttermost those who would come near to God through him. His sacrifice, holy, innocent, and unstained, was God's appointed mean for the salvation of his people. You see, our pride and and our self-righteousness and and our self-exaltation, our listening to God's provision of forgiveness and salvation to us in Jesus and us hearing it and going, well, I'll add Jesus to everything I do well for everybody already. All my best deeds, I'll add Jesus as an additive. Our, Our hearing of God's promise of sacrifice and forgiveness and restoration through Jesus and us looking at our own life and going, well, I'm a pretty good person. I think God will accept me. I'm better than most people I know. I mean, I spend a number of my hours every single week serving other people. I mean, I've got so many causes I give my money to. I'm pretty good. That's a really neat idea for everybody else. When you and I hear and see and respond to God's promised salvation, God's means of sacrifice, God's living hope, God's means of pardon through his son, and we go, I'm okay. And our self-righteousness and self-exaltation is the same thing that Hophni and Phinehas were doing when the writer said they showed contempt for God's sacrifices. God had provided a means of pardon, of forgiveness, of restoration, of peace with him and with others through the sacrifices. And in their contempt that they showed for that, they were showing contempt for God's means of forgiveness. When you and I look on the person and work of Jesus and say, well, that's nice for those people. I'm pretty good myself. We're guilty of the same contempt. Our pride and self-exaltation is nothing other than the same sin born fruit in a different way than theirs. But for all who would see him and humble themselves, repent of their sin and believe upon this man, Jesus, God has promised that he will save to the uttermost. And those that he has saved to the uttermost, he never stops interceding for. Priests not only offered sacrifices for God's people, but they mediated and interceded on behalf of God's people through those sacrifices and prayers. As they would offer that animal and that sacrifice, they would intercede and plead with God to pardon that person on the basis of this animal's blood. Jesus, our faithful high priest who has offered the once for all sacrifice in our place for our sin, in his body, on the cross, now never stops, never ceases to intercede for you and I, not on the basis of the blood of a bull or a goat because the writer tells us later those could never satisfy for sin, but on the basis of his own perfect life and death, on the basis of his own blood. He ever lives to continue to intercede for you and I before the Father on the basis of his life and his performance, and his merit. That's why Martin Luther would later write, what could be more precious to God than the blood of his own son? Jesus pleads our name before the Father on the basis not of your best performance, not on the basis of your best day in the past or your best day to come, but on the basis of his blood. And since he is alive, the writer of Hebrews says he holds this priesthood permanently. He continues forever, which means as our faithful high priest doing all that is according to God's heart and mind, he never stops interceding. It's why we will always prioritize seeing and enjoying Jesus here at this church. 
You see, Hophni and Phineas, they didn't wake up one day and decide to show disregard and contempt for the sacrifices of the Lord. They didn't wake up one day and decide to just go headlong into such debauchery and defilement of God's people that they found themselves in. They didn't wake up one day and decide to no longer know the Lord in their heart. You've got to understand this. Their entire life was wrapped up in religion. They knew the words of the Lord through Moses backwards and forwards. They taught them to people. They knew all the right things to do, all the sacrifices to offer, all the prayers to pray. They knew all the right things. Yet that environment could not guarantee their holiness. You've got to hear this. Your environment does not guarantee your holiness. You can go to great lengths to know all the right things, do all the right things, check off all the boxes, attend all the right things. Parents can go to such great lengths to get their kids in the perfect environment. They never seem to hear or face the corruption of a broken world. We can protect them in this little bubble all the way around, get them in the perfect place. They can know all the theology, know all the words, know all the Bible, know all the rituals, know everything they're supposed to do here and find themselves guilty of the same things of Hophni and Phinehas not knowing the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas, they were just the Old Testament version of the New Testament Pharisees. They knew all the words of the Lord. They combed it backwards and forwards. They didn't forget any measure of tithe or sacrifice or offering. Yet Jesus said in the entirety of their religion and their perfection and obedience, they missed him. Friends, you and I must never cease to prioritize seeing and enjoying Jesus. You and I, if we do not prioritize in our own hearts, and our own lives, together in our own homes, seeing and enjoying Jesus, pleading with God to open up the eyes of our, our own hearts, our, our family's hearts, our friends' hearts, our children's hearts, that we might see Jesus, that we might enjoy Jesus, we stand to find ourselves guilty of the same thing. It might look different, but it's the same thing. It's not knowing the Lord. And it doesn't matter how many people show up here on a Sunday. It doesn't matter how many things we do in this city. It doesn't matter all the activity and, and whatever you may look at it. If we don't know Him, if we don't see Him and, and enjoy Him, we're just expressing a similar contempt for His means of salvation. God has provided for his people once for all a faithful high priest who reigns forever, who never ceases to intercede for his people on the basis of his perfect sacrifice once for all. This is Jesus. He's the one we're to see and enjoy. And when you know this faithful high priest... When you see this faithful high priest and enjoy this faithful high priest, you come to realize that there's nothing left that you can do or have to bring to God to ensure his forgiveness and pardon and peace with you. You don't have to find a way to appease some kind of angry, just idea of who God is. When you know this faithful high priest, you come to know in a unique way that he has already provided all that is necessary for you to be made right with God and he never ceases to intercede for you. So when you showed disdain yesterday to your friend and the way you spoke or the way you acted, 
When you showed disdain yesterday to your husband or your wife or, or your children, you didn't delight in them. Rather, you disdained them in your heart with your words, with your actions. If you know this faithful high priest, do you know what? Even then, he was interceding on your behalf. Not on the basis of your best performance, but on the basis of his blood. He ever lives to intercede for you and I. This is the promised faithful high priest, the man Jesus Christ. Do, do you know him this way? Have you seen him this way? Do you enjoy him this way? Friends, we're going to give you a moment to reflect this morning on God's word. and It's a moment for you to, to go before God and to ask him to plead with him to help you see his son. Maybe the first time or the first time in a long time to see him as your faithful high priest who has paid the perfect price, the sacrifice for your sin. Whoever lives to plead your case before the Father. And then for those, those who have seen him, who have believed in him, who have repented of their sins, we're going to celebrate by receiving communion together, remembering his sacrifice, remembering his life, his death, and his resurrection. So let me pray for us and then we'll continue to respond. Father, we thank you that even in, in stories of darkness and depravity, stories of warning and judgment and justice, you have for us words of your kindness and your grace. You have for us words of your long-standing promise of mercy for your people. You have for us long-standing seeds of the fullness of what you've done for us in your son. This morning, help us, Lord. We ask by your Holy Spirit, you would help every heart in here to see your son Jesus. Maybe more than just as a as a philosophical idea, but this morning to see your son Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for their sin, the perfect sacrifice for their transgression, the perfect sacrifice for all the ways that they miss the mark of your standard and holiness. Help us to see your son Jesus this morning, not just as the perfect sacrifice, but as our faithful high priest who's never going to quit interceding for us, who doesn't get tired of pleading his blood on our behalf, who has taken upon himself all that was necessary to secure forgiveness and pardon for us with you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that, that you can, only you can do by your spirit. And we ask that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.